So who is right? The wisest theological course may be to affirm that the Lord's servant is both Israel and her suffering Messiah. In saying this, I am keenly aware of how important texts like Isaiah 53, which speak of innocent suffering, continue to be for Jews, especially since the Holocaust. Jewish exegetes and theologians say, when Isaiah speaks of the Lord's servant being despised and rejected by people, he is speaking of us, who were branded as subhuman, not only by common opinion, but by law. When we hear him describe the way in which folk hid their faces from the servant, we recall how we were turned away by our neighbors when we knocked at their doors and pleaded with them to hide us from the Gestapo, and how afterward they claimed that they didn't know what had happened to us. When he describes the servant being led like a lamb to the slaughter, we recall our parents, our spouses, and our children, who filed so silently to the gas chambers, not daring to open their mouths. We dare not disregard these voices. But neither, I think, should Christians give up their insistence that Jesus' redemptive suffering on the cross is being spoken of in Isaiah 53. Might there not be a way to combine these two interpretations? Might one not suggest that there is an analogy, a likeness, a mysterious identification between the redemptive sufferings of Jesus and the sufferings of other innocent victims, including Holocaust victims? After all, Paul himself says in Colossians 1.24 that he makes up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. And yet even some Jewish writers and artists have expressed a similar sort of intuition of an identification between Christ's sufferings and that of the martyrs of the Holocaust. One thinks, for example, of the crucifixion scenes painted by Marc Chagall in the late 30s and early 40s, scenes in which the crucified one is always an identifiably Jewish figure, and the background is usually a burning Jewish settlement or shtetl of Eastern Europe. Of this series of crucifixion paintings, the most affecting is the last, called simply The Crucified. It is described by David Roskies in these terms. Fully clothed Russian Jews hang on a series of crosses. The town is blanketed by snow. A corpse lies on the doorstep on the right. A slaughtered hen lies in the center. And a dead mother with an infant at her breast, a familiar motif, lies on the left. Chagall achieves a greater sense of desecration here because both sky and earth are barren. There is a multiplicity of crosses, and the crucified Jews at every other doorstep suggests a symbolic inversion of the Passover. No angel of death passes over the Israelite houses marked with blood. Instead, the hands of an enemy have nailed the Jews to individual crosses in front of their houses. It is therefore a landscape abandoned by God, but not entirely by man. A benign human presence still remains in the Judenrein, the Jew-free shtetl, none other than King David playing his harp, who is a symbol of the artist himself. This refusal on Chagall's part to abandon his town, his past, and his people to the forces of destruction is the sign of his faith in the redemptive powers of art. Roski's interpretation is insightful in many ways, but can the landscape really be said to be abandoned by God? The softly shimmering figure of the harpist sitting on the rooftop, which does not draw the observer's eye away from the crucified figures, and yet looms benignly over them, 
as he acknowledges, a symbol of redemptive power. And I doubt that, for Chagall, that redemptive power is only the power of art. Indeed, if the figure really is meant to be King David, who lived and died so many hundreds of years ago, then his presence speaks in some way of life beyond the grave. 